This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Strange New World. While Mission Control monitored our flight path, they discovered a mass of giant asteroids hurtling through space directly toward us. They were able to recompute our orbit away from the speeding asteroids. They could save us but not themselves. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast watching the most important trilogy in sci-fi history. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Luke, your story reeks of magic. (laughs) Remember that? I thought that was a great line that they didn't follow up on. They didn't follow up on that uh, magic line? Yeah, the world building, I mean. (laughs) I think I shut that line out of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this week we are concluding the TV movie slash failed pilot cycle of Genesis 2, Planet Earth, and finally, Strange New World. And of course, we can't wrap up this trilogy without the guest who's been been with us through it all. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Hey guys, how you doing? Oh, can't complain, can't complain. I mean, other than about this probably TV movie, I could probably complain (laughs) about that, but... (laughs) <laughs> it's funny you mentioned uh uh something not followed up on in terms of world world building because boy i have a lot of notes on that <laughs> show <Yeah. laughs> like there are so many ways this could have been more interesting and there's so many like they drop little markers everywhere about curious about this well we're not going there yeah <laughs> we're, we're not answering any of the questions that that raises that's for a future episode <laughs> very oh, yes boy. uh a lot going on in this in this new in this doing too. But before we get into it, I was just looking back to kind of remind myself because obviously this is the third attempt at creating a television series out of this concept. Uh, Genesis two being the first and Planet Earth being the second. I didn't realize Genesis two is March seventy three, Planet Earth is April seventy four, and then Strange New World is July seventy five. I've never heard of a show that they try like they're so excited to get the show off the ground. They try it once a year? Yeah. <laughs> but the first two times were... No, I think the first one was CBS, and then I guess Roddenberry took it to ABC and was like, we'll do it this time. It still didn't work. And then the third time, ABC went, you know what? We can do this without you. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. They drop Roddenberry. But not John Saxon, who was the star of the last one. They're like, we like John Saxon, just not Roddenberry. And it's weird. We'll talk about it. But don't you think... I never thought I would say this about Gene Roddenberry, but you really miss him. Like, oh you yeah, really definitely. See what he what he brought to it. As easy as he as he is to make fun of, and I know we we cracked a lot of jokes at his expense in the first two chapters of what I want to call the Dylan Hunt trilogy. But of course, he's not Dylan Hunt in this one. So, um, but yeah, you really miss him. It's like Gene, come home, Gene. We need you. I know. I thought the same thing after those last two. Where yeah, I mean, he was the butt of what we thought was the joke of these shows, and it, in fact, he there is something magic he brings because it is missing in this for sure. Well, I'll tell you, there's one yeah. sign he's not involved, and this is not ruining anything. Going ahead a little bit, but the first group of people that we're going to meet on this planet, these uh, sort of caveman esque sort of people, you know, if it was Ron Barry, this would be a group of women. <laughs> yes, I mean, yep. the show has a surprising lack of women, which is one of the reasons I knew it wasn't Roddenberry. Totally, totally, totally. And there's no weird sexual dynamics between anybody, like other than some 
you know, sort of uh, regular old fashioned seventies um, misogyny, where you know the 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 female of the group of our Pax heroes is sort of has to be has to be you know captured by the bad guys and then saved by the that kind of thing. Other than that, there's nothing. And and again, that's the thing you miss in Gene, as awful as that you know sort of putting women on a pedestal while dragging them down at the same time thing that he does is it's at least interesting. It at least creates conflict. At, whereas this is just like. Anyway, we'll get into it. But it's, <laughs> the, our Pax heroes in particular, I'm like, man, for three people who are stranded 180 years in the future, they're just kind of like, hey, check it out. I got a cup of coffee here. Would you like some? <laughs> it you is know, true. Like, <laughs> they, are the, they are so nonchalant about this whole thing. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, the first two had uh, the character named Dylan Hunt was the lead, and now they've changed it. I was reading about this and like, I can't quite understand how this would work legally, but apparently the character names and like, elements of the concept have been like shuffled like the idea of Pax in the previous versions was it was a society that came out after the apocalypse in this it's a pre-apocalypse like scientific group like they've they've shuffled some things around renamed some characters so I guess they could avoid potential litigation but I was just like you name the show Strange New World from the monologue of Star Trek like how are you avoiding <laughs> litigation from Roddenberry I don't understand yeah and he didn't have a credit which I thought was kind of outrageous like it clearly is the idea I mean it's the idea has morphed quite a lot by this point, but it's still John Saxon wakes up 200 years in the future, you know, to to investigate this this uh, the new version of Earth. Uh, you know, that idea is still it was central to well, the John Saxon part wasn't, but was central to both previous versions to not have Gene Roddenberry credited as a creator or executive producer or something. I assume they had to pay him something. But again, maybe not. Yeah, I was very confused. too. I was like, I don't understand how this gets you out of litigation. This is still the same show. <laughs> They told him to take his subway train and get out of the building. <laughs> you got to keep the model. I know. Though. It's like, yeah. I and mean, the best production value from the two previous versions and not to be seen here at all. Well, I guess they spent all the money now on their new uh, RV. Oh, they only ever see the front cab of. And these sort of awkward three shots. It's the same shot every time we cut to the front of that, uh, the, the cab of that uh, RV. With the Vesta, I believe it was called. That was built, that was just like a set built into the corner of a studio. It's like, that's as much space as we can afford. <laughs> we got a steering wheel. We're never going to look out the front window. No, 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 no. We're never going to do that. We're just going to look at three faces as they sort of stoically drive through the future. Well, we'll get into it in a second. Before we do, I want to uh, do my usual uh, what's in the news when this show comes out. Jordan, play the theme song. <laughs> oh, yeah, right now. <laughs> <laughs> so this came out July 13th, 1975. So I I'll keep it short. There's only a couple things I'll note here. Is um, July 9th, just before the show premieres, uh, Jack White of the White Stripes is born. Mm, okay, cool. And then on July 17th, a few days after it airs, the first joint space mission between the U.S. and Russia happens as two spacecrafts dock in orbit for the first time between the two nations. Was there a uh, monkey and or dog aboard, or is this this is post that? <laughs> That was way after this. This is when they were sending men up there to die. Ah. <laughs> All right, you guys. Let's get into this episode. Here's the INDB summary for Strange New World. In the near future, a group of scientists living in a spaceship wake up from a hibernation state and come back to an apocalyptic Earth. And that was courtesy of Luciana Haga. You know what's interesting there, Luke? That little uh, preamble you gave is all you really need to understand where they are. But this show chooses to do, and I timed it, it's nearly five minutes of voiceover before anything happens. Well, 
Well, I got to say, it was the best part of the show, so I disagree that I'm disliking it. <laughs> Is that right? You just, you just like watching images images of people walking around and stuff and shots of the spaceship while, while he's giving you all the back history? Yeah, this is the best part of the show. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it starts off with a both a fantastic font for Strange New World. I really, really love that font. It was beautiful. And a prologue to the show. Uh, PAX is now a contemporary science organization. It uh, has sent three people onto a space onto the space station to test suspended animation techniques, and uh, they're going to go in for sixteen days and twenty hours. And uh, these are our three heroes: Captain Anthony Vico. Played by John Saxon. They call him Tony, though. Tony? You like to call him Tony? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's a test pilot, an astronaut, and now the leader of this team. There's Allison Crawley, who is their navigator and communications expert. I noticed she didn't get a rank. He's captain. She's just Allison. I checked IMDb. The funny thing is, she's actually ranked as doctor, but they never call her doctor in the the show. (laughs) Because she's a girl. Yeah. Very funny, because the next character (laughs) they introduce is Dr. William Scott doctor like they don't, they don't give him any other uh, he has no other occupation he's just there to be a doctor i think she might have had a, a like a doctorate in philosophy though that's why they didn't really consider it she had her doctor in navigational arts mm. um however while they're up there in suspended animation uh we get a shots of a stock footage mission control detecting an incoming bombardment of asteroids to earth so they enter the disaster code and extend the hibernation by 180 years and send the ship around the sun do you think they had that programmed yeah. like by the decade or do you think it was like six months and 180 that was it that was the two buttons they had <laughs> disaster codes 180 every time it did seem like a random thing like somebody's going okay what are we gonna do two years five years screw it 180 years make it 180 years yeah. it's a big decision you know how long these guys are going to be sleeping it's, true. it's a long trip around the sun too Really is, and I, did they have to go all the way around the sun? Maybe they could have just gone around the moon. It's a, it's a long way. It's to a go. long way to go. And I also wondered. It seems like an odd group of three people to uh, to send up to a space station to put into cryogenic sleep. Like, why a navigator and a doctor and uh, uh, and 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 a captain? Anyway, I mean, could have been one guy, could have been five guys, could have been anything. It just seems it just seems convenient later that they've got a navigator to help them pilot their uh, their rv across uh the southwest united it's states true that was the one that really touched me i'm like why are you freezing a navigator and communications person <laughs> that like sure free saxon he's just like a he's a test pilot you can throw him into anything right how disappointing though when they wake up they don't have gigantic beards like they did in the first movie <laughs> all three of them should have long beards so true they, they fixed that suspended animation <laughs> problem in between the three movies yeah. the, the technology's upgrade <laughs> Um, this is what I did like about this opening prologue though is like that space station they're on's kind of got that spinning centrifuge like that 2001 idea sometimes it doesn't look as good as it could but for the most part I thought it looked like pretty good and as they come back around on this 180 year journey like they do this shot where they push the moons in the foreground and the earth like rises up behind it like it's rising behind the moon like they had some great like visual effect shots in this opening prologue that is really absent from the rest of the show and I don't know if you noticed, but when they when they uh, we have shots of them in whatever chamber they're in, where they're sleeping on those tables, we all we may not have Gene Roddenberry, but we do have the bridge sound effects from Star Trek. <laughs> it's the exact same track of like that that beep beep. It's 
It's just like being on the bridge. There's no other instruments that should be making those sounds that are in evidence. <laughs> There's no blinking lights or anything. It's just an empty room and the bridge sound effects. Um, but they, as they get back to Earth 180 years later, they wake up from their from their sleep. They climb onto the space station's shuttlecraft to return to Earth because, as we're told, their, their mission back on this post-apocalyptic world after this asteroid bombardment will be to track down their, their colleagues and their families who 180 years ago had them all put into suspended animation in a PAX underground chamber, but apparently they don't have um, a timer. They have to wait until these guys get back 180 <laughs> years later to unfreeze them. It's really not very well planned out at all. They, didn't, they really should have thought this thing through. And as a spaceship flies toward Earth, John Saxon's monologue begins, What would we find in this strange new world? Was anyone else disappointed they didn't wear those uh, clear sunglasses through the whole show? Yes, yes. Because when they were in suspended animation, they had them, and I thought, oh, that looks cool. And then later on, they're just wearing, like, they look like a bunch of, like, mechanics. Yeah. They had way better costumes in uh, Planet Earth, I thought. Remember they Agreed. had those kind of uh, Star Trek-y type uh, PAX uniforms that looked look pretty good by TV science fiction I mean, standards. everyone knows 180 years from now, we'll all be wearing one-piece outfits. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> onesies the, the future has flying cars and onesies that's yeah that's what it's gonna happen um so now the show kind of kicks off in earnest like we kind of begin into what turns out to be two standalone episodes that are like very loosely strung together it's a very strange thing and the thing that really blew my mind was that they both start the exact same way both episodes uh and and they both and the moment they both start with is a really frustrating moment which is a shot of this vehicle that they drive around in all the time the vesta i think it's called and both times john saxon's voiceover says we survived the crash landing and retrieved the vesta explorer vehicle now, first of all, to say that twice is really weird. But secondly, so you're telling me part of this story is you crashed your spaceship and then you found somehow wherever you had parked the Vesta Explorer vehicle, or maybe it was on board the, the shuttlecraft, I don't know. But there was a spaceship crash scene that we're just going, yeah, that happened. And now now we're driving. Like, the, like Also, wouldn't it have been interesting to maybe see the moment when they woke up and went, Oh man, it's 180 years in the future because these guys didn't know any of this, right? This all happened when they were asleep. So the whole moment of understanding that the world is destroyed, they're the last, possibly the last three remaining people other than these sleeping Pax people. All of that happens off camera. And when we meet them uh, in both episodes, they're just sort of, you know, how's your mom, Ed? Kind of just driving across <laughs> the, the desert. I think in all their that RV. information was copyright by Roddenberry. So he's like, no, 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 no. The scene where there's a realization, that's mine. And they go, okay. Um, what if they don't know? They drive around in something that looks like a cardboard box. <laughs> I thought I thought the same thing though, Kevin. When they were like, we crash landed our ship and had to find this vest. I was just like, oh man, why am I not watching that episode? <laughs> <laughs> that episode sounds really good. My I why was interested also because this Vesta they find they mention it's just like. The Vesta, it was designed to travel to Venus. And I was just like, uh, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I like that line, though, Luke, because later on, at least two, three other times, I don't know if it's because they knew that the car didn't look very good, but they have to keep mentioning that it's having issues and that things aren't working very well. Not because it's going to become a plot point later of, you know, it breaks down or something. They just keep going, yeah, well, on Venus, this would have worked a lot better. It's like, what? <laughs> what, what? Why? Why are you telling me it would work better? And it, it worked well on Venus, but not well on Earth? It's like, nope, definitely not. Yeah, at one point, uh, the uh, Allison uh, character says, 
well, we should be able to be uh, to the next point on the map in a day. And the doctor's like, well, you know, you're being naive if you think that this vehicle is going to work or something like that. It's like, well, really? Like, we're just expecting it to break down constantly? It's it's driving around perfectly fine at the moment. Yeah, it seems to work just fine. And I thought it's just not very nice to the navigator to have her go. It's her job to say, we'll be at this place in 12 hours and have the guy go, yeah, right. I mean, the doctor knows he needs to keep yeah. her in her place. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Listen, lady. I also thought it was insane because as I came to learn as I watched like the like both of you is this is basically just two episodes of a TV series vaguely strung together. But why does the first episode get an opening title of Animal Land and the second episode gets no title at all? Yeah, yeah, totally. Presumably it's called Eterna. That's what I came to guess uh, after a while. But I don't know. I, I, when I saw Animal Land popping up on screen made me laugh out loud because, of course, it sounds like, you know, Jungle Land or marine land or like somewhere you take your kids <laughs> i became sure i somehow had blinked and missed it and i went back and kept watching the opening of the second episode waiting for a title to pop up and i was just like where is it? you gave the first part of the title <laughs> is the whole thing called animal land yeah apparently this is all called animal land only really tight works for the first 30 minutes yeah but yes the, the sort of the first plot for this first episode begins when they're driving around they're using their vehicles instruments to try to track down water because they're all out of water. They've just used the last of it to brew the, a cup of coffee, and now they got to go find some more. <laughs> they should have had a shot of, like, Saxon taking a shower and stuff, and they're like, Tony, we're running out of water. <laughs> they're so casual. They're handing out that coffee. They're like, oh, by the way, this is all the water's left. It's like, oh, good thing we made coffee with <laughs> And it just raises questions about, so how many coffee beans do you have? Like, you, 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 you're short on water supply, but the coffee supply is okay? Well, and they end up in this man-made jungle that the sensors bring them to. Uh, we're very, we, the viewer, can very quickly figure out this is an old zoo of some sort because it's filled with exotic wildlife like lions, tigers, giant slithers, and elopes. <laughs> is that what he said? <laughs> These are the animals we come to learn inhabit this. They're, uh, almost all of them have weird new future names, except for lions and tigers. They still know <laughs> what those are called. <laughs> yes. That made me laugh. They couldn't come up with something. They were like, yeah, antelopes will be elopes and snakes will be slithers and uh, screw it. Lions are lions. I'm out of ideas. That's all they went, Lion. Perfect. Keep it. <laughs> In this zoo, of course, is a big fake concrete rock that's producing, I guess, water that they can use to drink. It's, I guess, it's like it's like a spring you'd find in the wild, but I couldn't understand. I was just like, but you clearly said this is man-made. I'm like, does this zoo have a functioning water processing plant that's somehow still working? I don't, I don't know, but I guess that's just supposed to be hand-waved over. But they're like, this is a pretty good place. It's got water coming out. There's fruit-bearing trees. You know what we can do with this fruit? We should go back to the still in the Vesta and make liqueur out of it. <laughs> they have... They have they have a two stage process of 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 uh, uh, excitement about discovering that they have guavas there. First of all, the doctor immediately says, "I could make fruit salad," which again made me laugh out loud. In terms of you know the the scientist discovering something fascinating in the land, he's immediately like, "Ooh, fruit salad!" And then immediately, like you say, turns to or booze. I could totally make booze out of these. The three guavas. of them are so excited. It's like top priority is they're like, "Oh, we gotta get drunk." <laughs> It was, I think, you're, to your point that they're very lackadaisical. Every time they find something, their intended use for it, always, like, the idea is, like, we need to get more water because we can't make coffee. Hey, we can make some booze out of this fruit. I'm like, are you guys, like, surviving an apocalyptic wasteland or is this, like, glamping or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, their navigator, Allison Crawley, she goes for a little solo, solo stroll where she uh, finds an elope. 
or uh, I guess an antelope or maybe a goat. I couldn't tell what it was. It, you know, elope made me think it was antelope, but it, it looked like a goat. Yeah, it looked so. like a goat to me too. The print like, oh, was right. so bad though that the fir- whole first half was shadow puppets the whole time. Yeah, it took me ages to understand that actually I recognized a couple of the actors, but I it, of the the characters they're about to meet. But it took a long time for me to recognize them because it was just so dark i saw that richard farnsworth was in here but for the life of me i still don't know who yes. he played he, i can tell you he's one of the elders i can tell you what he okay. does later in the episode but I, I think it's a sign of the level of uh dramatic inertia of the episode that you know richard farnsworth is an interesting actor and the other guy that's recognizable there is a guy named garrett graham who was uh, really memorable in the phantom of the paradise oh, if yeah, you've ever yeah. seen that the Ride to Palma crazy. He's Beef, the rock star guy who oh, ends yeah. up being killed in that movie. He gets electrocuted. But like to have Garrett Graham and Richard Farnsworth be in scenes and, and be in scenes together and you don't even notice them. It's so, the dialogue is so bland uh, that even great actors just stumble and fall when trying to make it interesting. Oh man. Uh, but yeah, Alison Crowley finds this elope. She lets it out of this man-made trap she's found. And as she does that, a, a group of very bearded wild men appear out of the forest and they, they kidnap her. Um, these are, I guess, they, I think they call themselves the wardens. They're sort of uh, game wardens who protect the zoo animals here. And um, they're going to take her back to meet their leader, old uh, Cirrus, because um, she has to be tried for poaching by an old copy of, like, the Articles of the U.S. Law they, that this group <laughs> lives by or something. There was one thing I was desperate here because it, it took me way too long to realize <laughs> that there were two different groups of, you know, quote unquote, I'm going to say savages for lack of a better term. Yeah, Couldn't you just had one of them wear like red rags and one wear blue rags make it easy for me? <laughs> <laughs> because they're equally boring. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. They're not like exciting in any kind of way. They're not antagonistic towards you. I mean, you eventually find out, yes, the one group is poachers and whatever, but there just there wasn't enough of uh, conflict between them to to because I had the exact same issue. I'm like, who are these guys? Are these guys different than those well, guys? Well, because like, the one group, you know, should be these sort of you know perhaps authoritarians, or they have because they have this um, you know a version of the Bible, as it were, that's given them all their moral code. But the other ones don't. But you don't really get a difference between those two or how that affects. And I think that's sort of a problem throughout this that you, you know for all uh, Roddenberry's faults. There was always a moral or an idea, even if it was clumsily displayed. He always had that in his shows, and this doesn't. This is yeah. like there's no real moral or idea behind anything. I totally agree. I think that's really apparent in both of these episodes that you can see what Roddenberry would have done. You could see where, oh, this could turn into an idea that's a conflict between this ideology and that ideology and, and what's right and what's wrong. But mm-hmm. that doesn't. In the, same ep- in the next episode, it's the exact same problem. You mentioned it, and that's a classic sci-fi trope, like finding an ancient book and using it as your new, like, Bible, basically. And in this case, it was this Articles of the U.S. Code or something. And I was just confused because, so they're apparently following old like forestry codes or something or like game codes to like for their laws to protect this place but the punishment for coaching (laughs) is execution or being branded with the letter p i'm like is that in america is that true is this an american law (laughs) that's still on the books in american law it's not discussed much but it's true it was weird though that that was the book they had like i mean it was interesting that it was like an obscure sort of thing i i assume but again to your point luke i don't know if that book lends itself to the idea they're trying to convey that you know there's this moral code now they have and it's like it's all based on what like don't cut a tree down like i don't know if it if it works even in this universe yeah it needed more specificity like if, even if it was just like this is a park warden's manual or something like at least that would have been more specific this is just like a general like i don't know codes of law i guess mm, yeah um 
Anyway, uh, Vico and Dr. Uh, Scott, they go looking for Crowley because she's gone missing. And this is when they encounter that uh, opposing group, the Poachers, led by their leader, Badger. <laughs> is that his name? Was it Badger? <laughs> I believe so. I didn't catch it till late in the episode. And suddenly people started yelling about Badger. I'm like, wait, that guy's name is Badger? Yeah, you're right. I'm looking it up. It is Badger. <laughs> I'm like, is that, it seems like a character out of Breaking Bad for some reason. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's also because badgers aren't called badgers anymore in this world, so it's not weird. <laughs> They're called bagos. <laughs> well, s- speaking of future lingo, this is great because they the ba- this badger character starts explaining what's happened to the, our two characters, and he's just throwing around all kinds of future slang. He's telling them that they aren't happy that these fornies, quote unquote, <laughs> have, have robbed their, quote, snag. And uh, when they're like, oh, uh, you want to know what happened to your friend Crowley? Oh, uh, you mean that omen you travel around with? Well, she's been kidnapped by the people inside. Oh, that's pretty good. The omen. I, I enjoyed it. I was just like, fornies? What's that? I'm like, oh, foreigners. <laughs> omen? I'm like, oh, uh, woman. Oh. You guys forgot what a W was apparently. <laughs> <in the picture." laughs> uh, another thing to point out, the introduction of the flare pistol yes. uh, made me laugh out loud because he makes a point uh, Vico of saying if we get separated I'll fire the flare pistol into the air like I always do uh, which it seemed okay but and then not a minute later they are separated from her and he never considers fly- firing the flare <laughs> into the air. he does later as an illustration to the other guys but never uh, to to let her find out where they are or to signal that she might be in danger never does the thing that he intends it to do when he first illustrates i also thought that was funny too because i was just like wait uh so if you'll if anytime you guys get separated vico fires the flare that only saves vico everybody else is (laughs) fucked (laughs) it's so true right i think you guys have figured out his plan he's only he's only really concerned about himself (laughs) oh vico but yes um badger and the poachers they know this other group they're in a basically a long-standing war with them because they control the animals in the water and these guys want animals in water as well and uh, Vico's like, hey, if you help us get our comrade back, I will trade you this high-tech futuristic flare gun, or as you call it, a shooter, and uh, that'll be the trade for getting our person back. And I thought it was a good trade because that is an auto-loading, unending ammo flare, flare gun. Like, <laughs> I thought he was trying to trick them by giving them a flare gun after he shoots it. I'm like, well, now it's empty. Right. But you'll see that flare gun shot four or five more times. Never needs to be reloaded. <laughs> It's the future, Luke. Flare guns are exactly the same, except you never need to load them. There's an argument you could go either way with this, but it is unusual in normal sci-fi terms that they don't have any weapons. They have they have the Vesta, but they have no... The only thing they have for a weapon is a flare gun. That's true. They're PAX. It's very peaceful. I guess that's true. It is called PAX. <laughs> it's the one thing they, they kept over from the last one. <laughs> I have to say, though, that flare gun does some real damage if you shoot it at something. <laughs> yes. Like when he... Because sh- I don't know if we've already jumped over it, but the scene where he shows off to the... Uh, badger or whatever his name is he shoots the tree and the tree like explodes i was like holy moly that flare gun (laughs) i know i also thought it was very impressive (laughs) um but anyway they they make their way into this zoo area with the poachers uh trying to find out what happened to crawley and like very quickly we come to learn these poachers aren't aren't really all that trustworthy they really want to get that shooter off of them and uh along the way they're attacked by a lion who is just like jumping on everybody including vico vico's like wrestling a lion for a bit in this show (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's mostly there so that Vico can lose the flare gun. The uh, poachers will steal it and run off with it. And the lion is eventually called off of Vico by, I guess, the the 
the game wardens or something. But essentially what happens is they lose the shooter. Vico and Dr. Scott are on their own and find their way into an old, quote, amusement arcade. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Skee-ball of the future. Skee-ball survived the apocalypse. <laughs> That's true. Um, and thankfully, this zoo... Uh, in their amusement arcade, also kept all their tranquilizer darts for the animals. <laughs> like, why did they have to say they were in the amusement arcade? Why couldn't he say they were in, like, the supply room of the of the zoo? That would make the darts make sense. But when, when he's like, oh, it's an arcade. Look over here. Darts. Tranquilizer darts. <laughs> what? Why? It makes no sense. It does make no sense. I think it's truly only there because he has to pick up, like, an old pellet gun or a crossbow. He's like, right. I can retrofit this to shoot darts. I'm like... Just have him find a dart gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. there would have been a dart gun with the tranquilizer darts. I also had questions about the whole ecosystem of, I mean, it's clearly a zoo, right? But, uh, you know, if you imagine the future and all the animals have been released from their cages or whatever, I don't think the goats and lions would still be hanging around in the same area. I think the, the apex predators would eat everything. And uh, uh, Are you saying the lion wouldn't instinctually just stand by the doorway guarding? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, and as well, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the you can constantly hear kookaburras in the background, like that Australian <laughs> bird, which every movie does that when they're trying to sell yeah. you the idea that it's a jungle. But it's, you know, it's a very Australian bird. There are none of them in North America. But did you hear that? Like, <laughs> well, they do say, too, I think they said this is the southwestern United States. So it's seemingly California right. or something like that. But at some points, it's a forest and some points it's like a jungle. And I was trying yeah. to think of what California would be. Isn't California mainly a desert? I think so, yeah. I think it's, a, you know, I remember Chinatown. That was very confusing to me, too, because at some point they said they crossed a huge riverbed that used to be the Mississippi. That's right. Oh, that's right. So I was, I was like, I don't know where they are. <laughs> well, they drove a long time in that cardboard box. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Allison Crowley's being put on trial for poaching by old Cyrus the Elder. Um, and she's also had a chance to, like, make friends with, I guess, his successor daniel so there's like this weird like not quite love story but you can see like they're warming up to her there um so they're not going to execute her or brand her with a pee for poaching they're just going to throw her into a pit full of snakes instead (laughs) (laughs) i was just gonna say the logic that they that the the leader there the wise man who's just so hideously boring every time he starts talking it's like oh my god this guy but when he's you know he's he's coming to the wisdom of understanding that maybe they shouldn't follow these rules with her maybe it's a more complicated situation We'll just throw her in a pit of snakes. That's that's his compromise. <laughs> that's like, fair enough. We won't follow through on this this punishing of her. We'll just put her in the pit of snakes. Perfectly reasonable. I think probably what it is is someone already dug that pit of snakes, and they're just finding excuses to use it. He's like, we do have that pit over there. Johnny dug it three days ago, so might as well toss her in. Um, but before she can go in, uh, Vico and Dr. Scott, of course, intervene. They're able to take Daniel hostage, this other uh, this other game warden, and essentially trade for Alison Crowley's life. Um, and essentially come to an agreement like, we'll trade you people, and then we'll be on our way. We won't bother you. And the wardens are like, fair trade, totally cool, episode over. Um, but as they're wandering back to their all-terrain vehicle, uh, they happen to see those poachers running through the woods with that flare gun they stole. And they understand that the poachers are off to go fight the wardens for control of the zoo. And they just have to go back and intervene because they've broken the prime directive. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a prime directive moment, isn't it? It really is like you could see the the writers trying, straining against referring to it because it's exactly what it is. We 
you know, these, if we, we've interfered with their culture and if we don't act now to, to correct the mistake we've made that they're going to be wiped out. But, you know, I also thought it's just the infinite uh, flare gun that's the problem. Like if it was if they had established earlier that there were only three or four shots in the gun, then you'd probably go, well, how much damage are they going to do really in the long run? They're not going to they're not going to win any war with that gun. But since it has infinite capacity for shooting flares, uh, it is a huge problem. It's a, it, it truly is a problem. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they they double back to the warden camp, which I don't know how they managed to beat the poachers there, but they beat them there by such a wide margin. They're able to like organize a plan for when the poachers arrive. But what I did like is as Badger enters kind of like the central zoo set to like show off and be like, I'm here. I'm in control now. He walks in and he holds up the uh, flare gun and he says, I has the shooter now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a meme for sure. That is, it felt very much like, uh, I am the captain now. Yeah. Vico steps out, though, to threaten him with his dart gun, or uh, as Badger would call it, a stinger buck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Badger just laughs it off. He's like, I don't care if you shoot me with a little pinprick. So he lets Vico shoot him once, and then he's just like, see, uh, stab from that little needle doesn't hurt me. Shoot me again if you want. So Vico shoots him twice with this trank gun. And the guy's just laughing it off like, ha that doesn't do anything to me. And then he just passes out from tranquilizer darts. <laughs> yeah, why did he think that the tranquilizer wouldn't have worked on him? I think he just thought it was like he was shooting like needles at him. I don't think he understood. I think we're supposed to think he doesn't understand what tranquilizers are. Ah. Right. But it was weird because you shoot him once and he laughs it off like, oh, we didn't like Vico didn't know something like they're immune to this or the tranks don't work anymore. I thought this was going to be a turn. Mm-hmm. And then he's like walking around being all cocky. And then Badger just passes out. I had the exact same reaction. Oh, there's some turn here where the gun doesn't work. The the tranquilizer doesn't work. But nope, not at all. Not at all. Uh, the invasion is thwarted. The poachers are taken into custody by the wardens. And of course, thanks to meeting our heroes, the wardens' worldview has expanded. And they've decided <laughs> to change their way of life by being nice to the poachers and maybe giving them some water and animals so they can survive and bringing peace to the land. Yeah, that was a real unearned turn, huh? <laughs> it was really weird. It's like, you taught us this. I'm like, did? I don't know if they did. Yeah, exactly. Again, and you know, if it was Roddenberry, he would have taught them that. It would have been a really cheesy speech that, uh, that he would have given about democracy or something, right? Uh, but there would have been a moment where... The, the Vico character has to stand and convince two people of something by giving a rousing uh, speech. But this doesn't have that. There's no there's no passion or conflict. So it's just sort of like, hey, we learned that thing from you. OK, bye. There's no have a, have a nice no night. Drama. Yeah. What would have been better is if instead of having that book of law, they just had a Chris Christopherson album cover. And that's why they all look like Chris Christopherson. They decided that's how they're supposed to look. I just thought of that right now. It's much better, right? It's very good. That would be great. Um, as, as a reward for, I guess, ending this feud, uh, old Cyrus takes them aside and tells them he's heard from traders from the West that have mentioned large villages with strange people and customs. If they head that direction, they'll, they'll cross the ribbon of stone or a highway, as they interpret it as, <laughs> and, and find these new villages in the future for, or that are perhaps bigger than the zoo. And our heroes are off at the end of the episode. <laughs> Okay, the ribbon of stone really bothered me. Of all the things to call a road, would you have called it a ribbon of stone? No way. You would have called it a stone path or something like that. A ribbon of stone? Come on. I'll be honest. When they said ribbon of stone, because they didn't explain what they thought it was for like a few minutes, 
in my mind, I was like, oh, yeah, they're just telling them to get past the Rocky Mountains. Like, I ribbon of mm-hmm. stone in my mind yeah. was mountains. And they're like, oh, no, it's just an old highway. I'm like, those would be everywhere. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, everywhere you look, there would be ribbons if that was the case. <laughs> also, how bad must these uh, these groups of Chris Christopherson feel if they only realized a few, uh, you know, a few miles down on that ribbon of stone, there's like an entirely advanced society. Yeah. Like, it's not too far. And they're, and they're over fighting over shooters. <laughs> They're there to protect those lions, Jordan. Those lions can't protect themselves. Um, Anyway, this, like, this is when I, like, about 20 minutes before this, I started realizing, like, oh, why is this, why is this plot wrapping up so quickly? There's still so much movie left. And this is where this plot ends and episode two begins because we pick up with them driving in their all-terrain vehicle again. Um, But this time, they're following a faint signal on their emergency recall frequency. And they can't quite understand why the signal's fading in and out until Vico's like, oh, hold on. Let me just take the battery for the signal monitor out and blow on the contacts and put it back in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got his little compressed air thing. He's like, this thing is dirty. He says, you know, oh, this is... Nothing in this. He says the line like, "Nothing in here is going to work. It's all dirty." And he, as he blows compressed air at it, just everything's too yeah. dusty in there. That's why nothing yeah. works properly. <laughs> Once they've cleaned off the contacts on the battery, the signal is now so loud, it causes them to collapse and pass out in the vehicle. I don't even know what you call this effect of them getting knocked out, but it's like everything's shaky and wavy and psychedelic. And then it goes into like five minutes of just uh, uh, Wolfman Jack sort of colors <laughs> is the weirdest sequence. Yeah, they, they cut to this crazy hallucinogenic sequence where... Like, all three of these characters are having their bodies scanned and, like, their life signs determined. You hear people talking about, like, scan their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And the entire thing is actually is one of the highlights of the episode for me because it's, like, interestingly visualized. Because it's like they're trying to do, like, a 3D digital scan of someone, but you don't have digital technology. So it's all done with, like, lighting and camera effects. Like, they draw, they draw lines over them and then hit them with little lights. I actually thought it looked cool. Um, but I just did not understand what was happening. Yeah, I totally agree. I th- when it starts, you're like, well, this actually, for for a show that up to that point, you know, with all of our time with the poachers and the wardens and everything, was so so visually bland. You know, we're 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 shooting at the African Lion Safari in the dark, <laughs> and the, and and now there's all of a sudden it's it's kind of sci-fi and cool. But then it goes on way too long without any clear explanation of what's happening. I mean, you understand they're being examined, but it, it feels like it's three or four minutes of cool visuals with nothing to support it yeah and i mean and then those visuals go away and we'll never return to yeah exactly get get ready for the the lame south california location work again because the rest of the episode is shot at some public library or campus uh college campus somewhere and uh and we're gonna break the togas out of storage from that one star trek episode i know right it it, they wake up and they're just now dressed in togas in the society of eterna (laughs) can i mention one thing though they all get and, and it does feel very Star Trek, like you said, Kevin. There's this sort of like, you know, Roman-esque throwback to what all what they're all wearing. But only Tony Vico is the only one wearing a robe that shows nipple. <laughs> <laughs> He's the star. You got to see a little bit of skin. That's what we came for. So we paid that eight bucks for. Yeah. <laughs> they're in this society called Eterna. It's a very, like, Edenistic-looking society. It was it was built by brilliant men for generations after the apocalypse, or as they call it, the Holocaust. 
Yeah. Yeah. I actually thought I misheard because at one point, don't they say this food is free of the Holocaust? And I went, yes. whoa, sorry. What did you just say there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they, they're using it as an adverb. I, it was, I was just like, I don't know if this is the term you should be using, but okay. Um, apparently, they've been using the Pax Emergency Signal for years now, generations perhaps, hoping to lure Dr. Scott here for nefarious purposes, we'll come to learn. But also, I was just like, you guys have had a plan to lure specifically Dr. Scott to Eterna. How would you even know he was like last you heard he was on a <laughs> he was space in shuttle. space. <laughs> but it was only 180 yeah. years ago. <laughs> I had the same reaction where you think, okay, at first you think they're luring people there who would be accessing the pack signal. That could be lots of people for all we know, right? In this post-apocalyptic world. But then when you come to discover it's this guy, they're looking for this one guy. You know, wow, that is really yeah, that's a real uh, Hail Mary pass to save your civilization that you hope that this guy's going to answer the call when you send out this signal to the world, which presumably doesn't travel around the world. He's got to wander by your campus, your college campus, or your public library. Yeah, it's like a 20 kilometer thing. reach of the signal. You're going to really hope he wanders by. Um, of course, Vico, being our uh, strongman hero, he is very distrustful of everything that's happening in this in this Edenistic society, because how could they be so peaceful? Did you like, though, the people doing gymnastics with the ribbons outside? If, oh if, if something says peaceful society, that's what it is. Every piece of shorthand's there. Completely. And this was a throwback to me. I can't even remember which of the previous versions it was. Was it Genesis 2, where we had a similar thing where we saw our people are so happy, and then you cut to two people like doing jazz dance? Yeah. <laughs> 100%. That was what I thought, too. This is like, oh, my God, just like that society in Genesis 2. Um Vico starts like poking around trying to figure out what what's really going on here. So he starts like he finds a computer and just starts pushing buttons at random. And he's, of course, stopped by one of the people who lives here, a uh, sort of uh, big man named Sprang. <laughs> Nailed it. Sprang intervenes. And uh, Vico, of course, immediately is just like, well, if you want to intervene, I'm going to punch you right in the face. And Vico proceeds to beat the man to death. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what though i wish they pushed into it i wish i know this is like going to be the crux of uh what's gonna get the the plot going for the second episode but i just wish that he just killed the guy that's just his character he's just like yeah i killed him that's right with my bare hands it is true it's supposed to be like it's it's only it's only like a mild punch to the face um that act, that kills him and he's just like whoa this guy's just really weak it's not because i'm a brutal brutal man who beats people um they're kind of taken off now to explain the plot of the series is um after killing sprang they're brought to witness sprang's funeral or celebration of life where everyone's dancing around and singing as they carry a coffin around and of course once they put the coffin down <laughs> sprang pops out of the coffin alive and well and they're all like whoa that guy was dead five minutes ago <laughs> And he pops out as if it's part of the deal. Like, that's that's what they do. There's like, you know, you blow out the birthday candles when they finish singing the song. And this this version of a funeral, when they put your casket on the ground, you pop up and say, hello, it's me, Sprang, I'm fine. <laughs> Did you guys catch the line, though, that uh, Tony Vico says when he pops out of the pops out of the coffin? No, no. He goes, what is this, some sort of Alice in Wonderland game? <laughs> I liked it. It was a good line. The, uh, the leader of Eterna, uh, a man known solely as the Surgeon turns to them and explains that this is per this resurrection is perfectly normal here and he says allow me to demonstrate and proceeds to stab a woman to death in front of them yes well what's weird about this and obviously there's a bit of a reveal for later but knowing what we know going forward of of what is happening in this planet is this the best way to show to someone 
that they are regenerating organs and things as we're going to learn you don't need to stab someone in the heart to show this <laughs> and plus we also come to understand you have a limited number of these things like it's not like they have an infinite supply of spleens and whatever so yeah. to kill someone just to make a point like he could have just explained it and as well that woman feels pain i mean she doesn't feel pain when they're doing the heart transplant or whatever it is five minutes later but when he stabs her he she... always says show don't tell yeah, them that's true. that's true and he never he never tells this woman he's gonna stab death like he's like allow me to show them how this works he's just like come over here and he just stabs him in the chest she's like well, why did to do that <laughs> um but yes basically it turns out this society has a very high-tech medical facilities and uh, a cloning technology that allows them to essentially live forever so as a result there's no one old here no one ever gets old you kind of live at this sort of like 35 years old 25 to 35 years old range and uh much to crowley alice and crowley's horror no one also has children here disgusting <laughs> yeah the shots of where she discovers the playground with the vines sort of where the set decorators kind of half-assedly just threw vines over the like in a very unconvincing way and and it's presented as like a real horror movie moment that it's like no one uses the swings you know <laughs> That was something well, it's else. funny too because them not having children has nothing to do with the society they just find out that during the apocalypse it destroyed like in this region, it destroyed their ability to have, uh, like, sexual procreation, so they just can't anymore. But she's still, like, so upset with them for not even trying. Yeah, for not trying. Very quickly, they explain how this all works by taking them to the see their, quote, collective womb. <laughs> and essentially, here's where they create test tube clone babies where they can, like, take organs out or use things they need to stay alive. And uh, they're showing uh, Alison Crowley all these uh, test tube, like, fetuses and babies around. And... There's just nothing more unnatural she's ever seen. Like there's a big there's a big monologue about how you can't do this. It's it's the most unnatural thing in the world to uh, have a test tube baby. It is funny because she takes a real moral stance, right or wrong, immediately into the society that they don't know anything about. It seemed like such a unscientific way of reacting to things, but I guess that is in the character of these these kind of blah characters, right? These aren't your classic Star Trek characters. These are weird facsimiles yeah and i thought the vico reaction to everything maybe it's a leftover from like if you think of the dylan hunt character especially in genesis 2 uh but even to some degree in planet earth there's the notion that he's like the brutal man from the past that he's the man of action that no one mm -hmm. in this time can be anymore that that should be gone from this version because he he isn't a man stranded amongst peace-loving people of the future who remembers the warlike ways of the past, but it's he reacts that way. Like he's the guy who's immediately like, you know, screw this. Like he's basically flipping tables over in Eterna about just how mad he is about everything. Uh, and with some justification at the end, but at the beginning, he's got no reason to be upset about anything. And and he's totally like, remember when they wake up in that room and they're in their, their Roman togs and whatever. And yeah, he's, uh, he says uh, to, um, uh, to the woman, well, does this look normal to you? Holding out his toga. And then he points at some random piece of equipment and says, oh, what does that do? <laughs> like, I, thought, I thought Allison would say, well, I don't know. How would I know what anything does? I just woke up in this room. But instead she goes and just flicks a couple of toggle switches on it. Just, And then he gets mad at her for doing that. It is true, though. Vico is very much, they have to back him into being the hero because he's just totally unreasonable for the whole episode. <laughs> Until the final reveal where, like, oh, you see, he was right to be mad this whole time. He just didn't know he was right to be mad this whole time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Unrelated, wasn't anyone else upset that the clones didn't have two belly buttons? <laughs> <laughs> That's two things that I really liked from the previous movies. From the first movie, uh, Genesis 2, 
the mutants that were there from, I guess, a post-apocalyptic nuclear war, whatever it was, had two belly buttons. And then in the second movie, <laughs> Planet Earth, men were called dinks. Those are two things I really wanted yes, to bring back, the but they, did, they didn't yeah. bring it back in this. I was just desperate for someone to go, what are you, some sort of dink? Yeah, Roddenberry <laughs> owns both those. Yeah, he owns those. <laughs> exactly. uh, going back to the idea, like, Jordan, this is maybe more for you. I, as I was watching this and they were like having a moral stance about the idea of like cloning a person or having a baby born in a tube kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, this is a sci-fi thing we've seen before. Like, I was just like, I think it's just of a time where people were freaked out by the idea of science being able to like help a baby get created Mm, maybe and then the more i thought about it i was just like what show because i'm like this is 1975 that makes sense i was like what was the other show we watched with this exact same plot line uh it was ultraviolet from the year 2000 had that same plot line (laughs) oh (laughs) so it was 25 years after this story it was in that episode where the vampires were trying to like have a give a woman who didn't have a baby oh right right i was like oh crazy that that stuck around for that long it's still timely. <laughs> anyway, we come to learn this this whole cloning facility, everything that's happening in Turna, turns out it's based on research that Dr. Scott started like 200 years ago. It's a four-day clone process. That's what I know. <laughs> Takes four days. This is why they've brought uh, Dr. Scott here. It's because this is his research come to life so many years later. Correct me if I'm wrong. We see Allison and Tony wake up, and Tony's all like, I can't believe they have blinds I don't like. And he's all upset. <laughs> But we do we, we don't see William wake up, do we? He's in the room, but you don't. He doesn't have a reaction. He doesn't have like a what's going on. Well, and I guess that's like they were hiding that because you would think he would be the one that would go. Wait a minute, a lot of this stuff seems familiar, and he sort of realizes how much is built on his research. But we don't get that at all for some reason. No, you never see the episode through his point of view, which is really weird. Um, it feels like you know if this was a. A series that went forward, this would have been a Dr. Scott episode, just like mm-hmm. sometimes there's a Spock episode or a McCoy episode where it's kind of from their point of view. But that never happens. And that actually started to bug me as this story went on, because the relationship between him and the surgeon, who I kept thinking was John Voight. I mean, I know it's not John Voight, <laughs> but I kept thinking, boy, that guy looks like John Voight. You know, it, it, the, the the surgeon learned from Dr. Scott back in the day, and that's why he wanted him to come back. I just kept thinking of the Roddenberry version of this, which would definitely have been that the surgeon, that, that Dr. Scott was the student of the surgeon. And that when when he sees him, he's like, oh, it's it's mm. Mr. Whatever, and I always worshipped you, and you're the smartest. And that's why he would be wanting to help them. Because as it as it goes on, as, as we're about to discuss, you know, he is being asked to help continue this society by hurting his friends which he has no motive for doing in this version not that we're seeing i mean you'd think the fact that he is the father of this technology Mm -hmm. that would come into play but you never see him consider that that's the thing they have all these scenes with the surgeon and dr scott and they tow right up that line where they almost give him those reasons but they never like make it explicit or like say it out loud they're like Mm -hmm. you're just like oh i can if i if i think about it really hard you could see a scene where this is how they push him over but they just never bring him quite right there. But you're right, Kevin. I actually, I didn't realize it till you said it. If you had switched the relationship of those two characters, William and I guess surgeon is what he's called. Yeah. If you had switched the, the teacher-student uh, relationship, it would have made a lot more sense and actually made sense more structurally that he would have, you would have had that scene where he goes, wait a minute, you know, Miss Vitendwi? You know, that sort of like, yeah. I, I know I recognize who you are. How could you possibly still be alive? But they don't have that. And it seems... That makes a lot more sense. But I guess that's just because this is not very good. Yeah. Well, they try that scene, too, because he has someone bring out his medical diploma to show to Dr. Scott. Like, it's supposed to be a big revelation. 
But the revelation is just like, oh, you've been alive for 180 years, so you've been alive a long time. I thought the revelation was going to be like, oh, I knew you. I just didn't recognize you because you're young. Or maybe the revolution I thought might even be, it's like, oh, you're a clone of me, maybe? I just... I. I thought that was going somewhere. And in the end, it's just like, oh, it, surprise, I'm just very old. Which we kind of knew already. Yeah. Like saying he's 200 years old, yes, that's a thing. But we already knew he was several lifetimes old. We we'd already been given that much information. So, yeah, it was. It I was, know you're a clone. Yeah, it was a shocking revelation that wasn't shocking. So what we've learned, though, is both societies are based on one little thing they found. The first one is based on this uh, a journal about how to survive in the woods or laws or whatever it is. And this is based this whole society is based on his diploma. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, all is not perfect in Eterna. As showcased by this surgeon, he's he's manifesting the signs of dementia despite his young appearance. So something's wrong with his cloning process, which we come to learn is uh, every time you clone a new organ or no, a new person, it uh, causes a slight deficiency in their immune system. And so essentially over the generations, their immune systems have all broken down. And they now only survive by being contained within a decontamination shield that surrounds Eterna. That if it were to be turned off for even a second, the germs in the wind would kill them all. Yeah, they're all the bubble boy. Yeah, they're all the bubble boy. <laughs> but the surgeon has a plan to fix this problem, which is why he's needed Dr. Scott to come here. He he needs his old-timey expertise to work on the cloning process, and he needs the other two for their delicious pre-apocalypse blood. <laughs> uh, they're hoping that their blood transfusions will help cure some of these uh, immunodeficiencies, I guess. Oh, boy. And the, the, the decision to have the effects of the cloning over time wear on the surgeon as as dementia that's a very poor decision you end up with some very comical moments where you know it's supposed to be it's i'm trying to think i know we've seen this in other science fiction it's a trope you know the idea that the villain appears healthy but then when he goes behind closed doors he's sort of collapsing Mm -hmm. it's sort of like darth vader's helmet coming on him and you know uh the empire strikes back and you seeing that he's horribly scarred for just a quick glimpse or whatever but the idea that he's being fed mush by the nice lady (laughs) Like, that's not a great reveal. Like, it's just not, it it doesn't make him a strong villain. The idea that, oh, he's kind of losing his mind and he's kind of not all there and you have to speak slowly to him and be kind. Don't they already say at one point, they're like, he's clearly senile. And I was like, is he clearly senile? It's not until the scene later where he, I think he says he pooped himself or something. I was like, oh, uh, (laughs) something's not right going right there. Totally agree. They say signs of dementia at a point in which we have seen no signs of dementia. Well, I was just like, I thought the problem was your immune system breaks down. Like, not yeah, that you all that get dementia. dementia. <laughs> and then actually even raising the question of dementia then makes me ask a whole bunch of other questions that the show doesn't want me to ask. Like, so wait a minute. It's the same brain, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you saying the brain is 200 years old, but every other thing in your body, including, I guess, your skin was replaced? At, like, I don't think the show doesn't want you to think about any of those things at all. And starting to I talk think that about is what they're implying, though. I think they're saying the brain is the one thing they they keep so it's getting really old but right they have the whole new body to stick i thought they could stick consciousness in it right yeah it's it's very confusing because even as this is happening uh vico and crowley are like wandering around doing their thing in society and they're they're not liking it they don't like to look at this eternal place and uh <laughs> vico discovers that the people have taken the batteries out of their all-terrain vehicle or something the vesta so he has to go around stealing parts to attempt to fix it so they can leave and in the process of this, of course, he meets one of the locals who maybe she's a little bit tired of having eternal life, but mostly she just wants to make out with Vico. Um, and hopefully she'll be a real ally for them. And in the course of his like adventures trying to like fix his vehicle, he, of course, crosses Old Sprang again, 
gets in trouble, gets beat up, and Sprang is now accompanied by a bunch of guys who are wearing, like, plastic masks that obscure their faces to, like, subdue Vico. And this is a throwaway reveal. They're like, oh, yeah, those guys in plastic masks, they're also Sprang clones that weren't quite right. So we just keep them around in plastic masks to just help around Eterna because nobody wants to see their sort of not right fate. I was just like, but I thought the clones were just for organs. What do you mean there's walking around defective clones? They have consciousness. And as well, they do not look anything like spraying <laughs> until the moment the mask comes off. Like they don't even match the hair color. Like they're really not trying. They're different heights. Yeah. I went back and looked because I was like, wait, those are all supposed to be the same actor. It's like, no, they are not. <laughs> I mean, they are supposed to be, but they are. Uh, guys, they're wearing clear masks. It's pretty effective. <laughs> <laughs> it's the reveal of like a different surprise to the show that's not the show doesn't want to talk about or do anything with it's just like oh also maybe there are other clones around that aren't quite right i don't worry about it yeah 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 um but because crowl or so yeah allison crowley and vico have been captured they're they're brought to the collective womb again and they're going to be given forced transfusions to help save the society and of course uh the surgeon brings dr scott along to this like medical malpractice place because uh he's trying to convince him he's like hey you get it you're a man of science we need to do this to our unwilling patients to save society you get it right man you understand what i'm after here and it's really weird because we haven't seen them become good enough friends for him to like turn on his old friends but that's i guess the moral dilemma this show wants to present to us um so they start taking i guess a little bit of blood i don't really understand the sequence because they're tied down they're like we're gonna take transfusions from them but before we do surprise we actually cloned you all when you arrived your fetuses are floating in these bowls next to you and we're going to try to test the blood in the clones we made of you to see if their transfusions will work yeah i wasn't sure what was happening yeah very unclear i guess the idea was like we've captured you tied you to tables but really what we're going to do is take blood from your cloned fetuses to see if that'll help us with our problem. But as soon as they do that, one of the fetuses immediately starts flashing red and dies. And the computer says, doesn't work. It says reject. It says reject in big <laughs> yeah, letters. Yeah, exactly. yeah, Reject, reject. I also thought if you're if you're Allison or Vico and you're being told, hey, look, it's not a thing. We just need to take some blood. Are you cool with that? And they're like, yeah, okay. Then they say, okay, just lie down on this table and we're going to strap you down so you can't move a muscle. And they seem to be completely cool with this. Like not a problem at all to be completely incapacitated while they just take a little blood. Well, and when the fetus dies, which I was just like, okay, so the, whatever, why did you have to strap it down to test the fetus was going to work? They're like, okay. The surgeon's like, okay, well, my plan to clone you and take your blood from your clones doesn't work so plan b i need to take nine liters of blood from you btw <laughs> you only have six liters of blood inside of you <laughs> yeah but uh, i'll be too fair to this uh, society uh, why they strapped them down as soon as tony woke up within within two minutes he killed someone so i think i probably would have strapped him down too yeah reasonable reasonable yeah. that's very reasonable yeah he's, he's thrown a lot of punches in eterna since he woke up so he's a loose cannon big- <laughs> so this is the big moral decision for old dr scott is he's just like well uh the surgeon's like well i'm gonna take all the blood out of your friends in an attempt to i guess save my society though so far he's shown no medical evidence this will work at all also they if they had just asked for allison probably tony and william would have said it's fine they could just have her <laughs> that, that is true <laughs> so dr scott teams up with the woman vico made out with earlier and uh, between was that Catherine Bach, by the way, I didn't recognize that it was her, but I, I went and looked at the IMDb afterwards and like, oh, yeah, that was Catherine Bach. I think she might have been voiced by somebody else. Yeah, 
Her lip sync was really bad, and a lot of her lines were on her back. But yeah, Daisy Duke, the original Daisy Duke. I did not know that. What a treat. (laughs) (laughs) She should have been in those Daisy Dukes. Yeah, then we would have recognized her for sure. But yes, Dr. Scott and uh, this woman, they basically mount an escape attempt. They cut Vico and Crawley free of their uh, tables. A big fight breaks out amongst all the people inside of the cloning facility. It's just like things are getting smashed. People are punching each other. I think the surgeon picks up this woman at some point and just throws her into one of the machineries that incinerates her. I love that part. She's fighting him and he's like, enough with you. And he just pushes her into what looks like a well and she just explodes. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. but essentially our heroes are basically smashing up this clone facility. The the uh, as they called it, collective womb. And as they're doing this, I guess at some point they just happen to break that decontamination shield they mentioned earlier, because in the middle of the fight, Literally, everyone in Turna just drops dead very suddenly. Yeah, why was that? Yeah. I think they must have broken that decontamination shield so the wind full of germs got in and everyone just collapses. I thought they were somehow connected, like uh, connected to a mainframe of this collective womb. I thought that's what it was. But that what you're saying makes more sense. But there was no evidence of it. You're entirely right. Because I had the same reaction. I was like, what, the Eternans all died in the same moment or all collapsed in the same and then I thought oh yeah they did establish this whole shield thing although even the shield thing was so vague because as Tony himself says well we got through yeah, it you somehow, brought us here how did you get us which through? is true yeah also yeah. I mean how are we as a viewer supposed to feel is it that like good riddance to these people that did nothing to them except for this one guy so their entire society gets killed well that's what how it yep. ends right is like I, I was so confused because at the end they're fighting them it looks like maybe they just knocked out the people they were fighting but as they walk out to leave like everyone in turn is just laying dead like everywhere on the ground as they walk out and our heroes just step over everyone's bodies (laughs) get in their car and casually drive off and i'm just like you just killed everybody like you guys don't seem to like have any thoughts on that yeah when you consider just an hour ago they were worried about if we leave now something bad might happen to the forest people but but these guys are like screw all these guys just step up don't mind the corpses get in the car like we gotta go no issue with that whatsoever it was crazy because it ends with them just casually i can't even remember they just have a very casual conversation about their next stop as they drive away and i was just like whoa that had no effect on you yeah my note was they seem pleased with themselves And then the TV movie ends. We just like, it just like ends as strangely as it began. It's just like, this is it, I guess. I've never seen a pilot that was effectively two episodes. I mean, I've seen lots of pilots that they, you know, that were double length that if they had gone to series would have been broken into part one and part two, which is, I'm sure, what both of our previous Dylan Hunt adventures were right or no actually was uh planet earth might have only been an hour long no i I think it was a full length but it was what was weird about genesis 2 and planet earth was like planet earth was more of a direct sequel like they did some explanation off the top but really it was like the continuing adventures of dylan hunt here whereas this is like all new characters all new premise but two standalone episodes in a series that had no pilot like imagine this goes a series no pilot ever existed for the show also, if your first episode is the one where they go see the bands of Chris Christopherson, that's a bad first episode. <laughs> no kidding, right? If you're if you're a sci-fi fan and you tune into that in 1975, you are disappointed. <laughs> like, it it starts with him talking about making coffee, like after the <laughs> after the five minute voiceover about meteor showers and the destruction of planet Earth. And when you actually get to new photography, new exciting scene, it's like. 
So this is the last cup of coffee. Gee. <laughs> yeah, it was such a strange. It was such a strange idea that this was to kick off a new series because it felt like you were just coming into a series mid progress. Yeah, it really did. Like this could be season episodes twelve and thirteen of season one, and then you sort of get it. I mean, it's still not good, but you could at least understand how that would work as a pitch. Whereas I cannot understand why someone at ABC would have read this and thought seems reasonable that seems like a great especially when it's the third time out when you're trying to improve on yeah planet earth because i think in, i i mean not not to jump to the summary but this is undoubtedly the yeah. worst of the three attempts right i think what the problem though is is and I, and I don't know how much this is true but it does feel that they were maybe handcuffed by their own restrictions of having this property that they could only use some of the ideas in because of legal issues or what it may have been that no that's not to excuse them just plain bad writing but it does feel like the ideas they kept were not maybe the strongest ideas like showing up at a planet and you're you don't understand what's happening i mean that's not a very original idea it's how what you do with it and so it just feels like they went through the motions which is as you're saying odd for a third attempt at it yeah I mean, how many shows get two attempts at a pilot, much less three, right? I mean, Star Trek is the only other show that comes to mind for me. They got two pilots, the original show. But to, to, to take an idea, and even I, I'm sure we joked about it on the, on the first two Dylan Hunt uh, shows. It's not even like the, the first version of the idea is that strong an idea. Like it's an like old sci-fi trope. It's mm-hmm. Buck Rogers. It's Planet of the Apes. It's the whole guy from now wakes up in a place in the future and things are different and and they've got to somehow explore and survive this new world. It's kind of a trope. Well, that's really what I idea. kept coming back to when I was thinking about this too. I'm like the idea that this got three pilots, three kicks of the can. Like I could like I you know I said this off air. I just watched all the Jaws sequels and like I from a <laughs> just a basic business standpoint like i get the idea of making three jaw sequels because you're building it off of like what was a very popular film that made a lot of money and there's a brand recognition but there's no brand recognition behind this idea but they just keep going back to like this time people will be excited to follow up and this i'm like yeah but no one was excited the first like i've just never seen something where it's just like here's an idea that no one liked Let's just keep trying. <laughs> no kidding, right? And you'd think the one piece of brand recognition that they would have had for this is Gene Roddenberry's name. Because this was right at 75, I believe, was around the time the new Star Trek TV series was heating up, which then morphed into becoming the Star Trek movie in 78 or whatever. So he was a name. Like, there, there were articles about him. You know, the, he, he was doing conventions and talking about Star Trek. So you'd think keeping Gene Roddenberry on board and making it Gene Roddenberry's Strange New World would be something. But no, that was the one thing they completely scrubbed out of it was no Roddenberry involvement Yeah, this is a real, like, window into a time that I can't really make sense of for any reason. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. And not not a time for great television based on this two hours. This was, you know, I really enjoyed watching the first two. Uh, it, it, for different reasons, they they were they were either for being wacky or or strange or whatever. But there was there was a there was definitely a commitment to making um, uh, an exciting show, even if sometimes those those decisions got weird. Like like the whole I was thinking back to the whole Dink storyline and the whole uh, subjugating men to women and all that. It's just such a strange series of ideas in that in Planet Earth. But but it was something. Whereas this is just so yeah. Nothing. You're right. That's the the greatest sin this thing has is that it's dull and boring yeah. and. The second half is better than the first half, but only marginally so. Yep. And if if only because it's in daytime, you know, it's like I could see things a little bit better. <laughs> it's like you get a point for that. But it's just it's uh, and no offense to John Saxon. I don't think he's 
bad in any of these but i also don't know if he's what you're hanging your hat on in this show like is he is he that i agree like, he's a serviceable leading man you know yeah. say what you will about william shatner but he's an engaging performer also w- putting him in that loincloth <laughs> or uh, toga outfit thing in those last couple of fights he's in i thought boy we're seeing a lot of sassy <laughs> like there's a couple of times he rolls over and it's like whoa did you notice though what his shoes were yes i did I he was, was like, wearing like I what i assume was spray painted silver running shoes <laughs> yes I was trying to, I kept freeze framing on everybody's shoes once I noticed his. It's when he's, uh, he, it's when he, I can't remember the scene. I think it's when he goes back and he's trying to jerry-rig some version of the the, the thing he needs to fix the, the Vesta. But there's a full frame shot of him where it looks like he's wearing, you know, canvas high top yeah. sneakers that maybe have some gaffer tape on them and then some spray paint. Like, I, here's what I imagined. There was a process by which costumes said, uh, Mr. Saxon, here are your sandals. And he said, I can't wear those. I got to run and jump. I got to kick a guy in the head. I can't. And so they came up with this notion of, well, we could take this other shoe and sort of turn it into a sandal, kind of, but not. But but then I swear, if you go back and look, I am certain there is an attempt in the scene where they wake up to hide his shoes. Because when he stands up and starts walking around the room, they're strategically placed uh, throw cushions on yeah. the floor that, that keep like I think they were embarrassed by the shoes and they did whatever they could to not show the shoes because the doctor's shoes are the same and her shoes you could I'm sorry I'm going on about shoes so much but I'm so glad you brought it up it is the weirdest thing to have these like off the rack togas but then say ah you know Chuck Taylor high tops perfectly acceptable as long as you have little little well, all paint. they needed to do was throw in a line of dialogue they'd be like oh yeah also by the way there's problems with gravity here we wear gravity boots <laughs> like oh that makes sense makes sense to me togas and silver shoes well uh, it sounds like we've covered most of this do you guys want to get into ratings sure yeah it, can I give you our ratings from our previous ones oh absolutely I'd love to hear what the last two were okay so Genesis 2 Kevin you gave it a 7 out of 10 uh, Luke, you also gave it a 7 out of 10. I gave it a 5 out of 10. Uh, and Planet Earth seems to be the one where we all had different opinions. Kevin, you actually gave it a 6. Luke, you gave it a 1. <laughs> and I gave it also gave it a 6. We, uh, I guess uh, I guess we've had some very different opinions. I remember I liked Genesis 2 a lot because uh, they nuke that village at the end of it. And I was like, yeah. that's a strong choice. <laughs> Plus, again, just Genesis 2, and at least in retrospect, wasn't there some complexity to it? Like, maybe it wasn't well done, but wasn't there, like, are Pax the good guys? Are Pax, maybe, maybe they have a different mm-hmm. agenda than they were presenting to Dylan? Like, there was some layers to it. Again, maybe they weren't well-executed layers, but there was an attempt, which when you see this show, again, three people driving an RV... Uh, you know, hoping to find guavas because they want to make some liqueur. And, there was like, also that insane that, stunt where that guy got uh, fell down on the horse and then get back up on the horse and rode off. And I was like, holy <laughs> yes. moly, there's your money's worth yes. right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, totally, I, totally. They both had their... I mean, that one, I, I, I maybe remember it more fondly in retrospect. I don't remember giving it a one. Uh, this is certainly worse than that, so I have to really <laughs> yeah. consider what I'm doing now. But... <laughs> <laughs> Are you allowed to retroactively change your uh, You can do I mean, anything you want. I'm allowed to do whatever I want, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so what do we think? What do we think of Strange New World, the third and final in this trilogy? I think I have to give this one a one. Because I, I really do Ooh. think this is borderline unwatchable. I was happy to watch it for the purposes of discussing it and also just for completing my knowledge of, of the Dylan Hunterverse or whatever it's called. I guess I can't really call it that right because didn't they reuse the character name again? Isn't Kevin Sorbo called Dylan Hunt? Oh, I believe so. In Andromeda. Andromeda. But anyway, in this in this trilogy of the same idea being recycled and regurgitated over and over again, this is by far the worst. Well, would I say one, though? There are a couple of things that I found entertaining. Maybe I'd say two. I'd say two. My final answer is two. <laughs> when I went into this, 
I didn't realize it was going to be like a brand new take on it. I thought we were going to get like a third sequel. Like the second one was kind of a sequel to the first one. So I was very disappointed to find out these were all new characters. I'm also going to give it a two because I liked all the space stuff in the first five minutes. And then I liked that weird scanning sequence at the beginning of Eternia. Those were the two highlights for me. Uh, So that's a two for me. Uh, I'm going to give it a three out of ten. I think mainly for waking up and punching someone to death. That was pretty good. (laughs) I like the silver shoes. And I also like the point where the guy just pushed the woman into a well and she exploded. So that's worth that's worth three <laughs> points. Three to ten. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. It is funny. Of these three, this is the one I'd recommend the least. Even though I gave one to the last one, I would certainly recommend yeah. you watch that before you watch this. I would say of the three personally, totally. I think Planet Earth is the strongest of the three. I remember thinking it felt the most like an episode of a TV show. Like the most like sustainable because remember there was a whole bunch of stuff there were the bad guys who look like Klingons Mm -hmm. there was a whole bunch set into play where you go oh I see how this continues week to week and um, I remember thinking John Saxon was great in it very William Shatnery in in that he's like this kind of you know ready to throw a punch but also quick with a smile and a laugh kind of leading guy I can imagine him being very watchable 100% I think that was the the slickest and like the most TV like I, I think I slightly prefer Genesis 2 because I think you mentioned earlier Kevin it doesn't quite land, but the premise of like a warlike man coming to a peaceful future and that like Pax kind of needs him to get blood on his hands because they can't do it. Like there there are interesting yeah. elements in that th- story that didn't quite land because I think they don't show you the him setting the nuclear bomb off. You just kind of hear about it later. But I think that's what I liked about that oh, one. Right. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that where they go, by the way, I set off a nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah, look over there. I <laughs> you did, did that. what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unrelated to anything. <laughs> Mentioning both Shatner and Saxon in the same breath, Shatner's toupee is well documented. And Kevin, weirdly, I know you and I have discussed it before. Um, yes. John Saxon's hair. I've seen him in movies over 30 years, and he's always had this maybe toupee parted hair. What, what's the deal with his hair? Um, I'm really glad you brought this up because <laughs> uh, I, I mentioned uh, off air that I've seen a couple of other John Saxon things this week. And it's become a conversation topic amongst me and my friends about because it is it's very wiggy, but it's also incredibly consistent. Yeah. Like, it, and in the fight scenes, it doesn't move. But I don't know. There's a couple of shots where I really thought it looked like a wig in this. There's a couple of over the shoulder shots where he's talking to somebody. Um, I think to Allison, and you can really feel the line in the back of his head where you feel like there's there's one kind of hair and another kind of hair between the two lines. But but it, it, he made like you know Shatner has had various toupees over the years so he's had different looks right he, how he looked as uh tj hooker was very different as how he looked as captain mm-hmm. kirk because he just changed his toupee changed his hair color and everything but this is like man john saxon looks the same in everything um that's that dramatic side part swoop yeah. thing right from the 70s right up to when he died so and he died this year by the way that's, that's right. another change since the last time we did one of these we've lost uh, john saxon so i think it's a subject for further inquiry which means we're not going to get a fourth of these <laughs> that's true <laughs> Jordan's passion project is over. Well, he would have been he would be playing the the role of the the senile old man in this movie. John Saxon would be playing it. He'd be the cloning guy. <laughs> this Just is a little this wink is the and one a nod. You'd remake specifically. Yeah, yeah, this is the one I'd remake. This is yeah. this has got the legs, yeah. I think. Maybe but, but maybe can you dumb it down a little bit? Can you just take a little <laughs> bit of the, the detail out of it? Yeah, I I heard a, an interview with a guy named Putter Smith uh, a while ago who's a bass player and he's also if you ever seen diamonds are forever mm-hmm. he, he, you know the two murderers mr winton mr kid he's the bald hulking guy whichever of those two was mr winton mr kid and he wasn't an actor he was a bass player who someone had spotted in a club and thought he was an interesting looking guy and they wanted this character who didn't have much dialogue in the movies so somehow through some crazy casting thing he got cast but in the interview he was talking about 
being a bass player for hire and being a jazz bass player, but playing on pop records. And he said, and this just, I thought of it just thinking of uh, the, the, the path from Genesis 2 to this show. And he said, what would happen is you'd go in to play on some pop record and they'd play you the song and you're, okay, what do you want to do? And then he'd start to play and he'd go, boom, 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 And then they go, um, it's a little bit too much. And then he'd go, okay, how about boom, 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 boom. And they go, um, and he's like, okay, fine, boom. Boom, boom, <laughs> boom. And then they, they go, perfect. And that's what this process felt like to me. Like there's all these ideas in mm. um, uh, uh, Genesis 2 which get reduced a little bit in Planet Earth to try to make it more of an action show and an epi- you know uh, an adventure of the week show. And by this show, it's like, boy, the ideas are just gone. Yeah. It's just there's, there's nothing left but characters meet other characters and there's an issue and the issue isn't well-defined. But and by the end of it, they're back in the RV trying to make coffee <laughs> yeah. and driving off to the next adventure. There's just nothing there at all. Oh, dear. Well, um, on that note, Kevin, I guess we can wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for coming back and doing another one of these with us. The last one, you can finally be free of watching these ser- this, this series of films. It really feels like it's been an adventure. It's been uh, a, a real journey as, through the televisual history. And it is fascinating to see, as you were saying, just three years in a row, bang, 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 and seeing the differences um, that happen over time with this one idea and how it changed. And we basically watched it, it one a year. So we watched it much like someone in the 70s would have watched the series. <laughs> That's true. It's like in real time. <laughs> Uh, but yes, thank you so much for coming back. It's great to have you. Next time, it'll be something brand new. It's very exciting. <laughs> My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Um, and listener, if you want to see some clips from this show, we're going to have some stuff up on Instagram and Twitter. The, the handle there is at Continuum Drag. I don't know, Jordan, what do you think? Silver shoes, woman exploding, shots of baby, test tubes. Probably not much from the first half because it's all dark. There'll Get be some stuff. Of that spaceship stuff, maybe. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe some people being scanned psychedelically. Mm-hmm. We'll have some good stuff from this, I think. Cool. And of course, uh, you can email us at continuumdrag at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on the trilogy we just finished. Um, but other than that, that wraps it up. So, uh, listener, thank you for joining us. And Jordan, I'll see you next week. See you then. And scene. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.